Chapter 15 of The Key to the Riddle, A Story of Huguenot Days by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. Never. What is it that you say, mademoiselle? It can never be? Nay, but you shall not say those words again. You did not speak them at the first. Your heart does not say them now. Gaston de Rohan spoke in a tone of assurance, but it was forced. His face was pale, and the eyes that searched Azarol's betrayed the anxiety that was torturing him. She could not meet the look. Her head drooped, and the cheeks which had been flushed grew slowly white. "'I must say them again, monsieur, I must,' she said, speaking hurriedly as if she distrusted her own resolution if she delayed. "'I did not speak them at the first because—because because of surprise, and just for a moment or two I did not remember. Ah, how could I forget?' "'Remember? What had she remembered?' he asked himself. Then a sudden thought occurring to him, he impulsively gave it utterance. A moment's reflection would have withheld it. Mademoiselle, that you are a Vaudois is no barrier. When Gaston de Rohan asks the hand of a demoiselle, he asks herself. Aught else does not even enter into his thoughts. He stopped, but it was too late. She drew herself erect and proudly. Monsieur, you forget, I am a de Montelimar. I had forgotten, Mademoiselle. The simple admission was the greatest honor he could have paid her, but she seemed not to have heard him. The momentary touch of Auteur gone, her face wore its old troubled look, and the lips were unsteady that formed the words she whispered to herself rather than to him. It can never be. Never. It was the evening of Thursday, the day which had dawned so gloomily on Christophe's account. Monsieur Vaux, after promising to ride over to the chateau early the next morning, had returned to his duties at the citadel of Pinerolo, and at Madame Eloise's earnest desire, Azerol, throwing a light wrap over her shoulders, had gone out to the garden for a breath of fresh air and hardly knowing where she went, had wandered as far as the clump of azarolia trees beyond the cherry orchard. And thither de Rohan, lying in wait for his opportunity, had followed her, followed that he might tell in his straightforward way the old, old story of a true man's love. And now he stood before her with the answer she had given him ringing in his ears. His pallor and the stern set of his features alone betrayed the soldier's fierce battling with a pain so sharp that at every heart-throb, man though he was, he winced. "'Never,' she had said, "'it can never be.' But to the young and strong, hope is hard to kill. Resolutely crushing down his despair, Gaston, who had walked on a pace or two in order to master, or at least to conceal from her, the suffering he was enduring, turned about and saw, with a sudden bounding of his pulses, the look on Azarel's face. It cannot be that she does not love me. I will not believe it. It must be that— He broke off, for at that moment what he fondly believed to be an inspiration came to him. You are remembering your parents, Mademoiselle Montu, he said gently, and he took one of her hands in his. Let me share that sorrow with you. We will search the world over for them, you and I, and when we have found them, our home shall be theirs. This was too much for her composure. The tender thoughtfulness of his love, coupled with the sudden realization of orphanhood that rushed over her with an overwhelming sense of desolation, broke her down. Oh, that she had had her mother now to go to in this her hour of need! Another time she might have conquered herself, but since the night before she had been on the strain, and both physically and mentally was unhinged. Sinking down on the grass under an azarolier, she gave way to a passion of tears. The chevalier looked on helplessly. "'It is her mother she is breaking her heart for,' he said to himself, a momentary pang of jealousy adding fuel to the flame of his love. "'And I have not even the right to try to comfort her.' Captain de Rohan's instinct told him she would recover more quickly if he left her to herself. Accordingly, he strode to the further end of the glade, where he paced up and down, his slow footsteps making no sound on the soft turf. Thinking he had gone, Azarel wept on unrestrainedly, but not for long. Bravely she struggled with herself. The forces of her unselfish and resolute nature came to her help, 
and soon the choking sobs were conquered and she was sitting quiet enough, her head still buried in her hands. The numbness of exhaustion which began to creep over her brought a certain sense of relief, and it was with a start almost of pain that she heard de Rohan's voice and knew he was standing beside her. Mademoiselle, She made no sign. Azerol, let us at the least be open with each other. I have told you that I love you, that you and none but you will ever be my wife. Am I right in thinking that—that that perchance you love me? She answered him neither yes nor no, but her silence, little as she meant it, spoke for her. Coming nearer still, he took gentle but firm possession of her hands. Azerol, what is it that dares to come between you and me? Slowly she rose and faced him. Monsieur, you have yourself said it. I am a vaudois. But he only gazed bewildered. It had not dawned upon him as a possibility that in a contest between love and religious scruples the latter might win. She saw she must explain herself. In the vaudois Bible, monsieur, it is written, Be not unequally yoked together with— her voice faltered, and it was with difficulty he caught the last words of a quotation which was quite unfamiliar to him. With unbelievers. The color mounted to his face. This, then, was the barrier. But surely it was not insurmountable. Mademoiselle, I am no bigoted papist, as by this time you must know right well. You may trust me. Not one word in favor of the Catholic as against the Reformed religion will you ever hear from me. It is true I have not your clear faith in the Scriptures and the God of the Scriptures, but surely such questions need not separate us. We can agree to differ, Azerol. Can two walk together except they be agreed? He guessed now that she was again quoting from the Vaudois Bible, and he made no response. We should not be walking together. We should be living apart, and—and for me, at least, that would be not life but death. Monsieur de Rohan, she went on, gently but decidedly withdrawing her hands from his, I am only a weak, faulty woman. Too often my feet falter and stumble on the pilgrim way, where at every turn there lurks temptation. He who walks along life's way with me must not be a hindrance but a helpmeet." Eagerly he spoke in answer. "'Mademoiselle, hear me. I dare swear it that your influence, were you my wife, would make of me what you willed. I seem somewhere to have read or heard it that even these same scriptures of yours would fain plead for me as the husband who might be won by the conversation of the wife. There was a minute, a long minute's silence. Azerol hardly breathed. She had come to a turn of the pilgrim way to find a subtle temptation lurking there. But when she raised her head and spoke, it was in the tones of one who was more than conqueror through him that loved her. Monsieur, you are the captain of a regiment. Your men have sworn to fight at your command. Disobedience would be mutiny. I, too, am a soldier. And these, as I have told you, are my marching orders. Be not unequally yoked. Loyalty to my commanding officer leaves me no choice but to obey. Any attempt of mine to win you to the side of the truth would fail without the blessing of God on my efforts. It were not but profanity to ask his blessing on that which he has forbidden." Her voice had gathered strength as she went on, and Gaston, ignorant of the hidden source of her courage, mistook it for the religious fanaticism with which the reformed sects were credited by the orthodox churchmen. "'I see, Mamselle,' he returned, a little bitterly. I see love counts for nothing when loyalty puts in her claim. Nay, monsieur, there you are wrong, for loyalty is but another name for love. He made no reply. Leaving her side, he paced slowly up and down, his brow clouded, a confusion of conflicting impulses struggling with him. Should he tell her that for years he had been groping after the very truth in which she believed him to be an utter unbeliever? Should he tell her that even now his sympathies leaned more to the side of the reformed religion than to the faith in which he had been brought up? These questions were hardly asked before they were answered. 
A swift recollection came to him, and his lip curled with a smile of self-pity, while in fancy he listened to her voice condemning him with a fine scorn as she had condemned Erasmus. Poor Gaston de Rohan! He is a great man in his own estimation, and with a grain or two more of unselfishness he would have made a hero. Aye, and would he not deserve the indictment, this Gaston de Rohan? Angrily he bit his lips, and the faster paced to and fro. Moreover, he asked himself, had he the right to further his cause with this innocent girl, by saying what might lead her to believe him nearer her in creed than in reality he was? Would that be honorable? No, a hundred times no. Before he spoke again to her of union with him he must himself know where he stood. He must first decide this matter between himself and God. And meanwhile he winced at the thought. Meanwhile he must leave the maiden free. He had no claim upon her, no right to ask of her a pledge, and meanwhile again he winced. Meanwhile someone else might come and win her where he had failed. Slowly he approached her where she stood, her fingers mechanically twisting and untwisting a lovely spray of azarolia berries she had plucked from the tree. She was very pale. The scarlet fruit she held gave the one touch of color to the perfect picture of modesty and grace she made in her lover's eyes. Eager to end an interview which was becoming painful to them both, she came forward and held out her hand. "'Good-bye, monsieur,' she said simply. "'You have been so, so kind to me. I am very grateful.' Taking in both of his the hand she offered, de Rohan felt it trembled. Never had she looked more beautiful, he thought, and he looked with a passion of longing into the fair face now flushing under his gaze. "'Mademoiselle,' he said, his voice steadying curiously at sight of the quivering of her lips. "'Mademoiselle, will you give me one little proof of your gratitude? The spray of azarolia you hold?' It seemed to her at the moment impossible to refuse the trifling petition, and she placed the bunch of fruit in his hand. He bowed his thanks, then for greater safety dropped the souvenir into the pocket of his doublet. "'Mademoiselle,' he began again, "'you have said never. One day, and so it please God, you will take back that word.' He raised the hand he held, and before she could prevent him he had touched it with his lips. Instantly she withdrew her hand and moved hurriedly forward. She had taken but a step or two in advance of him when a slight noise in the thicket behind caused her to start, as she had done on the evening before, and turned sharply round. The next instant she had sprung back and placed herself in front of de Rohan. The movement was so sudden, and apparently so inexplicable, that for a moment the young man stood bewildered. The next he was by her side, and imagining from her look that she must be feeling ill, he was about to put his arm round her for support. But she vehemently pushed him from her. "'Go back! Go back!' she called hoarsely. "'What is it?' he asked, without moving a step. "'There! There! Do you not see? Do you not hear? In the bushes!' she gasped. To her horror, de Rohan, putting her gently from him, dashed among the shadowy trees and was out of sight in a moment. Sinking down on the moss, for her trembling limbs were giving way beneath her, Azarel shut her eyes. There followed what seemed to her a long age of time. In reality it was not many seconds before de Rohan was again beside her. She was on her feet at once. Fear nothing, mademoiselle. Doubtless a stray dog or goat had wandered into the copse. Our voices had probably frightened it away. There is nothing to be seen. But I saw it, she whispered, trying, not altogether successfully, however, to steady her lips. Saw what, mademoiselle? A pistol pointed through the bushes. His face, hitherto expressive only of concern for her, now grew grave. Are you sure, mademoiselle? Fancy plays odd tricks with us at times. Her reply was as if she had not heard him. I saw it. I saw it distinctly pointed through the bushes." Her persistency impressed him. Still, for her own sake, he tried to rally her out of her fears. "'Then, mademoiselle, you put yourself in the way of danger by going nearer the foe.' "'It was not meant for me. It was aimed at you,' she replied with a shudder. It was his turn now to be moved, but not from fear. 
and you thought to shield me, mademoiselle. His voice was very low. Yes, monsieur, she answered simply, too agitated still to take in the full significance of her reply. He was holding her hands in his to still their trembling, and she did not look up. Forced to yield for a moment to the feeling of faintness which had come over her, she leant against the azarolier, and thus she did not see that the set sternness of his mouth was softened by an expression of rare gentleness, nor that his eyes, while he looked down at the woman who had risked her life for his, glowed with a light at once tender and triumphant. Her secret, the secret of her love, was his. But she had not meant him to have it, and some subtle sense of honor forbade his pressing the advantage his discovery had given him. She was the first to break the silence. "'Let us go,' she urged, looking round her fearfully, for the shadowy orchard seemed peopled now with a thousand nameless terrors. He did not attempt to persuade her to rest longer, but helping her to wrap her shawl more closely around her, and giving her his arm, bade her lean on him. He would fain have led her on slowly, but nervous terror lent wings to her feet, and she pressed on with a feverish haste. The slight rustling made by their footsteps among the fallen leaves, the long shadows cast by the trees, were cause enough to make her start and shiver. At every turn of the path she thought she saw again the pistol pointed at Monsieur de Rohan, and was it only her imagination? Or had she not seen behind the pistol a face she knew, a face dark with the passion of a jealous hate? The face of Michel Roussier. End of chapter 15